So we continue our series, number six, week number six, if you're paying attention, week number six in the footsteps of faith, one step at a time. Today, we'll find ourselves ending in John chapter six. But before we get to John chapter six, a little bit of a different message today, um, where it's going to be a little more topical as we wade through or wander through some of the tough sayings of Jesus, landing at John chapter six, and a challenge, a decision that the disciples made that you and I will remake or make again today. But I want to read to you once again the title slide that we have used the last five weeks and will continue to use the next two weeks. And this slide, I think, sets the tone for our series and will remind us not just of where we've been, but of where we're heading. Sometimes the Christian life seems like a never-ending game of Jesus says, rules, rules, rules. However, when we look closely at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we learn that Jesus' offer to his first century audience is the same as his offer for us today. He invites us to have a relationship with him, and it begins with a simple request. Just take one step at a time. One step. Maybe you feel far from the Lord right now. Maybe you, like me, you see the person you are, and you see the person you're supposed to be, and we feel the difference, and it stresses us out because we wonder how we're going to get there. Maybe you're frustrated with yourself. Maybe you're frustrated with God. Maybe you think that he's not paying attention. Maybe you're wondering if it's worth it. Wherever you are, next step. One more step today. One more step of faith. I'm going to take you right now back to where we left off last week. And I know you've slept since then, so it's going to be really hard to remember probably where we were last week. But I want to take you back. And I want to talk to you about some of the hard sayings of Jesus. Do you ever have a friend who just mouths off all the time, kind of like I did with Dan just a minute ago, right? Always saying stuff and you're always having to just kind of make up for it. And it's like, oh, she doesn't really know what she's saying or he doesn't know what she's saying. Maybe you have a spouse like that, right? It's like your husband's always popping off and you're always trying to clean up the, the damage or some of you are looking at the person next to you and shooting elbows. Maybe it's a wife that just has a, she's a little mouthy and sometimes you're always having to sort of back up, um, you know, what she's saying. There, there are people like that in our lives, and, and sometimes it's hard, but we love them. There are people, right? And so if you have somebody like that in your life, you know, you compensate for them. You get their back, and you just sort of, you know, help them grow. And the disciples, I feel like in some cases, they thought that about Jesus. Now, you might think that's irreligious, and it's not. I don't want you to feel like that I'm being at all or in any way um, dismissive or disrespectful of the Lord. But Jesus said some really hard things. And I see his disciples time and time and time again saying, Jesus, you got to quit saying some of this stuff. People don't understand. If we're going to do your PR, if you're going to run for office, if we're going to get this kingdom thing going, we're going to have to, to make sure we minimize some of the stuff you're saying and maximize more of the works. Because throughout history, from the day Jesus was born into this world until today, very few people have ever had a problem with the works of Jesus. They love the miracles, they love the healings, the feedings, the walking on water, the stories. Oh, they love them. But the words of Jesus stress people out. But you can't have the works without the words. You can't have the words without the works. Jesus gave both to communicate the kingdom, but his disciples, they were listening to Jesus. And as they listened to Jesus, I mean, it stressed them out. First of all, realizing the standard that Jesus was communicating, it seemed so hard to attain. Secondly, realizing how countercultural it is where Jesus seemed to always be going upstream when the rest of the world was going down. And they came to a point where they had to choose, where they had to decide. So what I want to do is I want to begin again where we ended last week and take you through some of the hard things that Jesus says 
culminating with one of the hardest things that Jesus says, and then the disciples' response. This was our passage, Matthew 16. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself. Remember, we talked about that last week. Take up your cross and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains his whole world but forfeits his own soul? And this concept of denying yourself, of taking up your cross and following Jesus, although we talked a little bit about it last week, I want to expound a little bit on some of the things that Jesus meant when he said it. And I want to remind us how hard this really is. Just because it's hard doesn't mean it's not right. Very few things in life are easy if they're worth it. Denying yourself is not easy, it's just right. It's worth it. And Jesus said, my works and my words, they go hand in hand, and you have to decide who I am. Now, wherever you are in this continuum, whether you're just starting out in your faith journey, whether you have reserved judgment and are not quite sure who Jesus is, whether you've been around for a while and you're really considering taking this next step of being a faithful follower, or whether you've been a follower of Christ for a long time, I think today will provide some common ground for us, take us to a really healthy place. Sometimes Jesus says some really hard things. Let's look at some of these things. A famous sermon that Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 5. He said, and my paraphrase is, turn the other cheek. Here we see a phrase repeated many times in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said. Now, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, again, if you've been with me for the last five years, we've talked about the Sermon on the Mount in detail, so you know a little bit about the background and what was going on. But one of the things I haven't shared with you yet that I'd like to share with you today is why this phrase was repeated over and over and over again. If you like this kind of stuff, if you like a little context, a little background, you like a little biblical insight, this will be right up your alley. If you don't, then just don't pay attention for the next 45 seconds. It'll be over fast. But there was a reason Jesus said this. You have heard that it was said far more significant than what it looks like when we just read this in the language that we have available to us. Now, at this time, when Jesus was walking the earth, when he was teaching, the Jewish leaders of the day read Old Testament scripture, which is all they had in Hebrew. And so you think, well, what's the big deal? They were Jews, they spoke Hebrew, but that's not true. By this time in history, the Jews had been in exile, they'd been in captivity. Almost all of the Jews spoke Aramaic. And so by the time of Jesus, when the, in the hundred years or several hundred years before Jesus, the Hebrew language was only a scholarly language and people spoke a different language. And so when scriptures were written and passed down on these tablets or papyrus, these papers in Hebrew, people couldn't read them. They didn't know what they said for themselves. So the only people that could read the Bible were the religious leaders, the, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the people who were educated. And because they could read the Bible and nobody else could, and they were human and had human sinful nature, they began to change the things in Scripture and not really say exactly what Jesus said. They just sort of said, take my word for it. And by the time of Jesus, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of religious law had created their own Scripture and created God in their own image. And they were saying, Jesus said, or we would say Jesus said, God said, and in reality, God hadn't said this stuff at all. So when Jesus says the phrase, you've heard that it was said, what he's saying is all you did was hear, you never read, you don't even know, you're taking somebody's word for it. And by the way, look at the way they live, chances are you don't want to take their word for it anyway. Thank God we have a Bible where we can go and fact check and read and study. 
You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If somebody slaps you on the right cheek, turn your left cheek also. Now, I'm a disciple sitting there listening to Jesus give this sermon. I'm going to write this down and go, Jesus, we got to talk about this later. This isn't going to sell well. This won't test. If you want the votes, if you want the kingdom, we can't have any no slapping back. If somebody slaps you, slap them harder. If somebody slaps you on the cheek, give them a double slap to teach them not to slap you back, right? That's the American way. And um, Jesus says, when somebody slaps you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. Now, a slap, don't get me wrong, it wasn't a threat of violence. Jesus isn't saying if someone's threatening your life or the lives of those you love, ignore it and turn the other way. Jesus didn't teach that. This was an insult. It was a slap at the face. It was like a, a person who was um, uh, throwing a barb your way, who was challenging your integrity, who was slamming you by saying things that are unkind. And Jesus said, quit worrying about your reputation. Let me worry about that. You worry about your character. And he said, turn the other cheek. Who cares what people say about you? Let it go. So, disciples, they write it down. Go, we're going to have to talk about this later. We need to talk to Jesus. This thing, right, probably shouldn't say this again. Let's put this kind of in our back pocket. Jesus moves on. He says, love and pray for your enemies. You have heard that it was said, love your enemies and hate, or love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, I want to be a follower of Jesus. And this is really hard. Pray for people who persecute me. Pray for people who mistreat me. Pray for people who don't like me, who want to hurt me. Pray for, are you kidding me? And if I concede that point and go, all right, Jesus, I'll pray for him. I'm going to pray the Old Testament prayers where I want chafing in uncomfortable places for my enemies. I want lightning bolts from heaven. I want their donkeys and livestock cursed and their generations to be, you know, I mean, I want to pray Old Testament, smiting, smoting, smiting prayers. I want retribution. I want punishment. And Jesus said, no, pray for them. The disciples write this down. Oh, my goodness. We can't do that. People aren't going to do that. They're not going to, they're not going to pray for their enemies. It's not going to happen. And they begin to, to discuss among themselves as you and I would discuss when we learn these things that Jesus is teaching in Scripture, we know, first of all, they're not negative things. These aren't things to hurt us or restrict us. These are things to help us and to give us a mindset or a point of view that's Christ-like, that's freeing. That they're not negatives, that they're actual positives. That they're not pointless. They're pointed to make us more like Christ, to draw us toward the Lord. And just because they're hard, it doesn't mean they're right. And Jesus goes on and he gets more personal. I'm just picking a few. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shouldn't murder. And everybody's like, yeah, we got that, don't murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Now, this word anger, as Jesus explained it in its original form and language, it means really three different things. One is that if you treat people like they don't deserve to exist in your world, if you're aggressive towards somebody to try to move them out of your world, like they're unimportant or they, sh they shouldn't be there, or you just outright attack somebody because you've decided that you don't like them, that you're dismissing the importance of their soul and the fact that they will land somewhere for eternity and the decision they make about Jesus is what's going to be the deciding factor. And Jesus said, oftentimes it's you they see and if we're driving people away, how in the world 
will they see Jesus? And then he gets even more personal. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shouldn't commit adultery. And everybody's like, right on, we shouldn't commit adultery. That's a no-no. And then he says, but I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman, now this is contextual, right? They always pointed at the men back in this time because it was a male, more oriented society. But this counts for women too. That you shouldn't look at a woman lustfully who's already committed, if you have, you've already committed adultery in your heart. And the disciples are like, wait a second, what I'm doing in my heart matters? What I think in my heart? What's the problem with a look? I mean, if you look, can't you look back? And what if you look a third time? I mean, God created beauty. And, you know, I mean, what are you talking about? I can't dislike people. I can't push them out of my world. I can't look at beautiful women. And Jesus, you're really getting in my business. We better write this down and we better talk talk to you about it later. And so there was an impossible standard that's only possible through following Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. And the disciples constantly were faced with a decision. Now, I'm going to take you back again to last week. First time I've ever done this preaching, ever. I've done this, goodness, a long time. Um, And this is the first time where I've ever done uh, a redaction, an editorial uh, correction. And I'm going to do it this week, and this is why. Because I had a senior adult lunch last Thursday where a lot of the senior adults, uh, retired adults, we get together and we hang out and we have uh, lunch together. And one of them, my friend Don, he was like, when are you going to give Joy the microphone on Sunday morning and let her stand up and correct all the stuff you say about her? And I said, never, Don. That's never going to happen because, um, you know, it, but he, he was like, what, what happened on Sunday? Give us the story of the pants. That's what Don said. Now, some of you guys may not remember this story, but I, now I want to tell you, I'm going to correct something last week. First service, I said it elegantly. You should have been there. Second service, not quite so elegant. So I'm going to replay one minute of last week, and then I'm going to let you know what I had to do about it, which takes us into this next subject that you and I are going to talk about. Very, very important. Just watch with me very quickly. And um, we eat pretty lean at the Mellet Cow. It's pretty boring. Um, and um, it's intentional. We eat, I eat tons of grilled chicken, lean pork, white rice, steamed veggies all the time. Every day, same meal, same breakfast, same lunch, almost the same dinner. When we go out, we don't eat that way. We call it cheat night, which means a whole different thing for some people. Uh, for us, that means we eat what we want, right? That's cheat night for us. And uh, we went to, to California Pizza Kitchen. We sit down. And I looked at my wife and I said, do not even think about ordering a $17 piece of grilled chicken. Because if you order grilled chicken that we have in our fridge at home, I said, but don't even do that. I'm not paying for it. So we ordered the worst thing on the menu. The worst. We ordered French fries with it. I ate every single French fry. We had the bread and the butter. and We ate it. And well, we, I mean, we knew what we were doing. And, and we had to go buy an emergency pair of jeans for Joy. And that was not it. because she ate too that much at it. all. We were going to the mall before that. She'd kill me if she was here. She had... She had to leave after first service. Don't tell her, please. This is just our secret, just between, between right. you and me. All right. So if you were here, you know I may have stepped in it just a little bit, a little less than elegant. When you talk for a living, eventually you become that person that puts your foot in your mouth, okay? And so uh, our, our, our retired adults, they're like, tell us the story of Joy and her pants. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And they said, did Joy really poop her pants? And I was going, no. 
to my knowledge, she's never pooped her pants on any date we've ever had in 32 years. To my knowledge, I've never asked her. I mean, never had a cause. And they said, well, the way you said that sounded like, you know, what, is, what are emergency jeans? Now, this is the way I said it in the first service. I said, hey, we were heading to the mall to buy a pair of jeans that seemed like it was an emergency because Joy had to have these jeans. And we went to, I said, California Pizza Kitchen, Cheesecake Factory. Okay. Now, just as a matter of context, the reason it was an emergency is I was in Dillard's a couple weeks ago, and I happened to see a pair of jeans walking through the women's section, and I've never done this ever. And I was like, hey, those would look good on Joy. So I told Joy. The first thing Joy said was, who were they on? And I said, no, I follow the teaching of Jesus. They weren't on anybody but a mannequin. And she goes, well, I've got to go find them if you think they would look good on me. That was the emergency. So we went, and we had lunch. And we fulfilled the emergency gene shopping experience and Joy was perfectly fine and she wasn't even mad at me for even telling that story the wrong way. But this is what I had to do. I said, Joy, I'm really sorry if I put you in a bad light. I've never said anything on stage that would ever put you in a bad light. You're amazing. So everybody knows you're a better person than me. All I do is celebrate your personality. And she's like, yeah, yeah, I know. And she's great. But then I thought, oh my goodness, if I said something, I need to apologize. I need to ask for forgiveness. It's important, right? And the reason I bring this up isn't because it's a big deal, because between Joy and I, we, she didn't care. We've been through tons. You guys didn't care. But I just wanted to illustrate that it's important. And I'm going to take you to this next subject, and I'm going to take you to this subject, and I want to take you back to this subject. And, and I've fought my own spirit, my own nature. I believe the Holy Spirit. I've fought for four weeks on this because it's repetitive, and as a pastor, we don't want to be repetitive. But it comes up almost every single week in my conversations with you guys. And this is my sense. My sense is that there are some obstacles in some of our lives that have become mountains that you and I have acknowledged are there that have not chosen to do anything about. And my fear is that we try to communicate this message here with so much grace that the urgency of the message is sometimes forgotten and it breeds some complacency or just a lack of urgency that I communicate somehow to you that it's not important. And Jesus comes back and reminds us of this over and over and over again. And I remind you of this. And I really felt impressed a couple weeks ago that I really needed to talk to you about it again. And I just didn't want to. But then I led a small group a couple weeks ago and it became a theme in the discussion that we were talking about and, and individual discussions since then. And, and even last week, a friend coming up in between services. And it's the idea of forgiveness. And I'm not sure why it's so hard, but it is. And Jesus, another hard saying, he says, forgive like others forgave. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? And Jesus said, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Now, again, we've talked about this passage. This isn't new for you. 
But this passage, when Jesus says 77 times, what he's saying is there's no limit to the amount of times you forgive. And why do you forgive? Because Jesus forgave. Matthew 18, Jesus talks about it. There's a man who was forgiven everything and he chose not to forgive this insignificant debt. What would you do to such a man? And Jesus says, you forgive like I forgave you, which is, I mean, Jesus forgave comprehensively. He forgives immediately. He forgives. But you and I don't. And there's another passage here that I love to bring up with you, and it's one that I, I hate but love at the same time. And Jesus says, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, basically it's this. If you're coming to church, if you're on your way to church, and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there. Don't go. Stop. Stop the car. Turn around. Pick up the phone. Leave your gift there. Go and be reconciled. And then come back and and come to worship. Now, the Bible tells us that we are supposed to be at peace as best we're able with all people. And sometimes we allow petty disagreements and grievances to get in the way. And we don't know why it feels like we're not walking with God, where we don't sense his presence in our life. We don't know why our prayers don't seem to go anywhere. We don't understand why there's no spiritual power. And Jesus reminds us, unless you forgive like I forgave, then you don't have a heart after me. You're not following. And the disciples write this down, forget this stuff, I'm not forgiven. I'll forgive most, but I'm not forgiven everything. I'm going to forgive all of this except this, and you have no idea. And they wrote it down, and they said, we're going to have to discuss this. I'm not sure if we can follow Jesus and do this. And you and I, we, we say the same thing. And Jesus says, you got to do it. Now let's talk about this. This is repetition for you. These are things that you saw, again, last year and then two years ago. But I want to talk to you a little bit about Forgiveness, very quickly. Forgiveness is not saying that what happened was okay. Forgiveness is not enabling somebody's bad behavior. Forgiveness is not denying that something bad happened. It's not waiting for an apology. It's not forgetting that it happened. It's not stopping to feel pain. It's not a one-time event. It's not neglecting justice or consequences. It's not trusting again. It's not even about having a relationship because sometimes it's unsafe or unwise to have a relationship with somebody but it's about an attitude of the heart where we give the offense to the Lord and we say, Jesus, it's between you and them. It's no longer between me and them. I can't bear it anymore. We let it go. And we feel like we're gonna lose something because the bitterness and resentment that we have held deep in our hearts feels like part of us. And when you let go a part of yourself, you don't know what the self is gonna be like and it's scary. And Jesus says, just because it's scary doesn't mean it's not right. Just take a step. Unforgiveness imprisons us in our past. It produces bitterness in our heart. It invites Satan into our lives and destroys our fellowship with God. And I'm motoring through this because we've talked about this, but I, I just have to, to remind you, there are some stages. First, we become aware that we need to forgive and we don't really have a plan to do it. And I know for a fact there are many of us in this room that are right there. I know it, I'll say it, I love you. We're honest with each other. I know this to be true. Number two, deciding we should forgive but we're still working on it. And I'm sure there are many of us in here that are like that as well, right? But number three is where this freedom comes. And number three is forgiving the person and enjoying this freedom that comes from it because we are no longer trapped in an event by a person that happened in the past. Dr. Cloud says that forgiveness is about the past. Reconciliation is about the present. Trust is about the future. I'm not talking to you about trust and I'm not even talking to you as much about reconciliation as I am about the past and about the forgiveness that comes. 
and the freedom when we let things go. So you and I, we take notes. We write these things down. We're like, Jesus, these things are hard. And I understand they're true and probably good for most people. I'm not sure I can do it. And then Jesus goes and he talks about something. And let's just move on. If you have your notes, you can dive into this slide. Then he goes in John chapter six and he gives one of the hardest messages or speeches that he's ever given. I didn't put the whole thing on the screen here. I encourage you to read it. If you don't have your Bibles with you, that's perfectly fine. I'd love for you to read this at a different time, but you just read John chapter six, particularly the 10 or 12 verses before this. Jesus gives a speech and in this speech, now I should tell you when the speech comes in Jesus' ministry, that's important. It comes right after Jesus does a miracle where he feeds thousands of people from nothing. I mean, little kids and snacks, you know, he's like, makes this huge miracle, best meal they ever had. Walks across the water, crowds chasing him. Jesus, we're gonna, we want want food, we want miracles. And Jesus goes to one side of the lake and then they chase him, you know, and Jesus, we want food, we want miracles. They go to the other side of the lake and Jesus is doing this stuff. Then he gives a speech and he says, you guys think I make the best food ever. This is just my paraphrase. Read it for yourself, right? You can read it actually for yourself. This is my paraphrase. I've made the best food ever. I've given you a meal that you love and you want more. It's heavenly food, right? It's food you've never had before. You loved it. But if you want food that's gonna last forever, you're gonna have to eat my body. And if you don't ever wanna be thirsty spiritually anymore, you have to drink my blood. And people are like, that's weird, Jesus. You sound like a cannibal. And the disciples, they probably whispered among each other and go, I kind of know what he means, but it's so hard to hear. Now, in context, you understand what he's talking about. He's given an analogy because he made this huge meal and he's talking about the sacrifice that he's going to make as he lays his body down, as he gives it up on the cross and bleeds for us for the forgiveness of our sins. And then the Bible picks up, John does, in John 6. And he says, from this time, many of his disciples turn back and no longer followed Jesus. Now this no longer followed is a really cool phrase. It's sad, but it's kind of cool because it's kind of like unfollow. Um, You have social media. This is a good way for us to be passive aggressive. We get mad at somebody. What are we gonna do? Snooze them for 30 days, right? And then what are we gonna do? We're gonna unfollow them because I'm sick of seeing their face on my Facebook or my Insta or whatever it is. And then you wait a period of time. And then when you're really mad, then you defriend them. And and you're like, we're done. And you hope they count their friends and they see who it is that's defriended them. And then you know you really jabbed them. And you know, we, we get like that because we're human and we're petty. But I mean, this is literally, it's the same thing. They had already snoozed Jesus for 30 days. They had already unfollowed Jesus in their minds. And, and now they're like, look, we're, I'm defriending you. We're gone. I've seen it. I've heard it. I've calculated. I've t- we just, it's too hard. And literally the crowds turned and walk away. And Jesus, it broke his heart. And I wish I could hear and see emotion in this verse 67. You don't want to leave me too, do you? Looking at his 12. Now, they had had meetings. I know that because of the way this language is constructed and that they're human. They had talked amongst each other. They probably had considered Jesus to be that friend who meant well, but was saying things that he probably shouldn't say and realized he's the real deal. They'd gone through this process. They're human. They're just guys and and, and people like us. And Jesus says, you don't want to leave me too, do you? And, and Jesus, he asked him, and Peter, of course, speaks up. Now, he doesn't give Jesus a direct answer, which I think is kind of insightful. He doesn't say, well, of course we don't want to leave you, Jesus. This is what he says, where else would I go? I have weighed and calculated and evaluated. I've watched, I've listened. And even though it's hard and even though it's confusing and even though people don't really like it sometimes, We don't have anywhere else to go. 
Where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. You are the Holy One of God, which is a Jewish reference to God himself. I wish I'd been able to sit in on the meetings they had. When Peter says, we've talked about it and we've decided, right? Even though, where else would we go? This is how I want to leave this with you today. This is what a follower of Jesus wants. Now, if I ask you, do you want what Jesus wants? Most of you in here, at least if you've been around church for a while, you'd say, I want what Jesus wants. And if you and I were having coffee together, I'd look you in the eyes and I'd go, no, you don't. You can say that back to me. Sometimes maybe, but be real with me. You really want all of this stuff all the time? No. Now, I want to want what Jesus wants. Now a lot more heads would be nodding going, yeah, on the days that I don't want what Jesus wants, I really want to want it, but I'm such, you know. And then there's this third phrase. One of these will catch us. I want to want what Jesus wants more than I want to want what I want. Jesus fixed my wanter. A follower of Jesus Christ doesn't dismiss the words of Jesus. A follower of Jesus Christ submits themselves to the authority of the word of God and the teachings of Jesus Christ, even though they're hard, because they're right. And they lead to freedom and purpose and peace and ultimately to an eternity in heaven. And you'll live in a way the world doesn't understand and you'll feel like you're going right when they're all going left and you're going upstream and they're going downstream and that's okay because that's what it looks like to be a follower. So I want to pray for your wanter. And perhaps today's the day that you've come to a point where you are deciding I will no longer walk up to the mountain in my life and go the other way. Jesus, where else would I go? Father, thank you for my friends. 